Hello and welcome to Theoretically Theatrical. In this series, we peek behind the curtains and explore the world of performance. Today, we will be taking a look at theatrical ghosts. We actors are a superstitious lot, and so it's no wonder that in the long nights of late rehearsals, our minds have conjured up ghouls and goblins from creeks and scurryings behind the scenes. But is it all in our heads? Or is there something more to our fears? Let's visit a few of these thespian spectres. I've noticed that there are some themes to these transparent fellows. Men in black and ladies in white or grey. If you want to spice up this episode, then you could have a drink of your choice whenever one of these colour-coded phantoms enters the stage. We begin at the Citizens Theatre in Glasgow. In 2018, the theatre manager Leslie Davidson was interviewed by BBC Scotland. While she herself does not believe in the supernatural, people have reported seeing figures on the edge of their vision. These sightings and small, unexplainable incidents were blamed on spectres. These include a strawberry seller who still hawks her wares on the upper circle, a monk who likes to help those lost in the building by guiding them back to the foyer, an actor who prefers to watch shows from the balcony, and a lady in white who walks freely about the theatre. There is a tradition that the ghosts are given a round of applause every Friday night. We head down the road to the King's Theatre. Here we meet a seat tipper, a rapscallion that likes to run about the auditorium tipping empty seats. Now let's take a ghost train to Edinburgh and the Festival Theatre. Here we meet the great Lafayette, a famous illusionist who died in a fire at the theatre. People often see his diamond rings glittering in dark corners. He's frequently accompanied by his trained lion, who still likes to roar when the auditorium is empty. There is also the peg-leg sailor. He patrols the flyloft, still checking that all is secure. Many people have heard the scrape and thump of his wooden leg. Back on board, everyone. Our skeletal driver is taking us all the way to Liverpool. Our first stop is the Liverpool Playhouse. Their resident spectres include Elizabeth, a former cleaning lady who died after falling into the orchestra pit. She lingers in the gallery. Her favourite seat is A5, where she watches the comings and goings of the theatre. There is also the Grey Lady, who resembles a bold woman who came to the theatre alone, a very political gesture in the 1890s. She prefers to sip her coffee at the bar and watch the show from the nearby stalls. Their third phantom is a quiet gentleman in a frock coat. He makes his rounds of the stalls, apparently looking for his long-lost daughter who ran away to the theatre. No time to linger. We have to hurry on for a brief visit to the Royal Court. This is home to Les the Painter, a former caretaker and a well-established resident. 
Odd noises, knocked over and moved items are casually attributed to him and he's very popular with actors and stagehands. Now our train wends its spooky way to London, where we shall disembark to visit the Theatre Royal Drury Lane. According to veteran actor Nigel Planer, everyone in the theatre has some kind of experience. They think they saw the man in grey, or they heard a door slam when there was no one in the building. When you're in here at night after a show, when everyone's left and the only thing on is a little blue light above the stage, I challenge anyone not to be spooked. The man in grey that Nigel mentioned stalks the upper circle and is seen by performers as a sign of good luck. Comedian Joseph Grimaldi still capers on stage and kicks his living co-stars when he thinks they need that extra little push. (laughs) Music hall star Dan Lino lingers in the wings with a lavender scent. And all the while, actor and manager John Baldwin Buckstone keeps a spectral eye on the performance. We mustn't outstay our welcome. We have an appointment at the Adelphi. Let me introduce you to William Terrace, an actor more often heard than seen as he knocks on the dressing room door that used to belong to his girlfriend. He still commutes to work on the tube and is often spotted entering carriages. Now let's take a plague ship across the pond and hear about their particular brand of spooks and spectres. We'll be heading down Broadway, starting with the Belasco Theatre. David Belasco founded the theatre and produced more than a hundred plays in it. He was so dedicated to it that he lived in the apartment above the theatre. It is said that he keeps a watchful eye on the place even after his death. On the opening nights of shows, he is often spotted watching the performance from a particular seat in the balcony. When he isn't assessing the performances, he returns to his old apartment and has been spotted there multiple times. Even though the physical elevator to the apartment has been removed, he seems to still use a personal phantom one, as staff have reported hearing the distinct rumble of an old elevator from the empty shaft. Our next stop is the Lyric Theatre. Clyde Finch was a well-known playwright in his day. He was such a consummate professional that he took a bow at the staging of his last play, even though he had died of food poisoning three months before. Just a quick stop at the New Amsterdam to meet Olive Thomas, the lady in green who wanders the stage at night. She is said to be particularly active when the theatre undergoes some sort of change. When leaving for the night, the actors and members of the staff blow Olive's picture a kiss goodbye. And finally, to the Capitol Repertory Theatre. Here we meet a tall man in a long black coat and hat who makes odd noises in the wings and waits with actors before their cues. Surprisingly, he seems keen to listen to those who want to chat. It's believed that it might have been an old drama teacher who still likes to take care of the actors. Many theatres in America still have what they call a ghost light. A single, uncovered light is left on throughout the night, illuminating the stage. There are different accounts of why this is done, but most agree that it is for some kind of protection, usually from the supernatural. Either it keeps the ghosts away, or it encourages them to stay close to or inside the light. Of 
course, the West does not have a monopoly on theatrical spectres, but I have to save something for next year's tour. So why are ghosts and theatres so connected? Iofi Monk asserts that for those that work in the theatre, ghost stories are a cultural commodity. It connects you to a theatrical history. It could also be seen as a rite of passage. By telling people the story, you secure your place in the community. Luckhurst and Morin tell us that every actor has a ghost story, just as all theatre spaces have their ghosts. The ghost stories a culture tells are linked to trauma, memory, and the exclusionary nature of social norms. Theatre frequently explores these themes in ways that make us confront them. Performing these haunted memories can also bring insight and catharsis. By shaping what scares us, we codify it and make it understandable. After reading some of these stories, it strikes me that the majority are positive. There's an idea that our performing forefathers and mothers are watching over us. We can be remarkably kind to our ghosts, performing rituals to keep them happy, or taking their routines into consideration. Perhaps we want to believe that we are still connected to them in some way. It's fun to tell ghost stories, but don't frighten yourself too much. At the end of the day, the dead are not trying to hurt you. They're probably far too busy with their own business to bother with you. If you start to get too scared after a spooky tale, then here are some natural phenomena that can explain some things. Peripheral vision. Low light and dark areas can contribute to ghostly sightings. As our eyes strain to see, we are often hyper-alert to the little movements picked up by our peripheral vision. The edges of our retina are sensitive to motion. When we can't clearly see what was moving, our imaginations fill in the gaps. The ordinary becomes the extraordinary. Hearing things. Our brains fill in the gaps in lots of ways. Seeing patterns in clouds, landscapes, and stringing together sounds into voices. This is called pareidolia. This commonly happens when you are listening to white noise like static or the wind. Depending on the context and your frame of mind, you can make different meanings out of unintelligible sounds. Sleep paralysis. This is when your body is functionally asleep, but your brain is alert. This often causes distress for the sufferer. It can mean that you are still dreaming, but you're projecting those dreams into the world around you. These are a type of hallucination. They may be very frightening, but they're only a dream. I actually have an example of this. When I was very little, about four or five, I woke up and was convinced that I had a huge snake in my bed. I could see it. I could feel its tongue licking the air. I was petrified, and I jumped out of bed and I ran through to my parents' room, insisting that we had to leave because there was a huge snake. When my dad went through, it was just my blanket. My dreams have been projected onto the real world, so I definitely know that this happens. Nobody knows what happens after death, and there are lots of unexplainable things. Whether you believe in an afterlife or not, ghost stories can tell us a lot about our communities. So raise a glass to our performance ancestors and keep telling ghost stories. After all, 
Ghosts are there to remind us of things we try to, but probably shouldn't, forget. Thank you so much for listening. This has been a Yorick Radio production. 